happy Hunger Games, and may the odds be ever in your favor. Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years' experience. My name is Anne Hawley, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow StoryGrid certified editors, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Leslie Watts, and Kim Kessler. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. Then we all test the idea, looking at it from different angles to give writers deep insight into story structure. Well, the odds are in our favor this week as Leslie takes us through The Hunger Games on a tour of action-adventure conventions. This 2012 action film was directed by Gary Ross from a screenplay he wrote with Billy Ray and Suzanne Collins, and based on Collins's novel of the same name. Before we start, there might be adult language in some of the clips, and generally speaking, this is an adult conversation that sometimes does include adult words. Leslie's going to start us off with the genre and a brief summary of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff to orient us to this exciting action story. Okay, so the beginning hook is when Katniss Everdeen volunteers as tribute because her younger sister's name is selected, she receives a wide range of advice. But when Haymitch tells her she must get people to like her to survive, she must decide whether to embrace that approach or rely exclusively on her hunting skills. As they enter the capital, Peta waves to the crowds and encourages Katniss to do the same but she refuses. The middle build. Katniss and Peeta arrive in the capital and soon the Hunger Games begin. But when Katniss awakens from the Tracker Jacker attack and Rue tells her that Cato's alliance has gathered all the supplies by the cornucopia, should Katniss risk separating and revealing their position to the career tributes or continue to try to evade capture? They split up and Katniss destroys the supplies, but Rue is caught and then killed. Ending payoff. The game makers announce a rule change that would allow Katniss and Peeta to be the winners, but after the other tributes are defeated, the rule is rescinded and Katniss must decide whether to accept Peeta's offer to sacrifice himself or sacrifice them both. She decides not to give the game makers a winner, and as both prepare to take poisonous berries, the game makers declare them both winners and survivors. It's quite a story. <laughs> yes, we have an action-adventure labyrinth plot here. Um, Leslie, can I just jump in for one quick minute here? Yes, please. I, I don't disagree that it's an action story, but when I was watching or re-watching this film, and I've read the series as well, the thing that came to me is that although it's primarily the global genre is an action story, there's elements of a whole bunch of other stories, other genres in here. And I thought maybe we could just take a quick minute because when we're working with clients, I mean, the first thing that a writer has to do is commit to their genre, right? You've got to pick one as the global genre. And that's a really hard thing for writers to do because we're so close to our stories that we see elements of a lot of different genres. So committing to one can be really difficult. And of course, here in The Hunger Games, 
it's a global action story, but you've got elements of performance, uh, status, society, and probably others that are just not coming to my, my mind right now. So I just thought that was a really interesting example for people when they're trying to pick their the genre for their stories to know that there absolutely can be flavors of other genres in your story, but one of them has to reign supreme. And this is a great example of an action story or some other genre story with a strong love story subplot, which supports many kinds of stories. Right. A love story too. Exactly. Right. right. That's yeah. an excellent point because there are so many different elements, but in the end, we must choose one that will be strong enough to carry all the subplots that you want to include. Of course, this season, I've talked about the importance of studying conventions for the global genre. And here's a quick reminder of what conventions are. They are the characters, setting, and means of turning the plot that set up the life value change that occurs in the story. Now, they are paid off by the obligatory scenes, which are events, choices, and discoveries that are specific to the genre and that move the plot forward and change the global life value. The content genre will give you those primary ingredients for the story, but other elements contribute conventions as well. And today in the episode, I'll focus on labyrinth plot conventions and the ones that are specific to that plot. But in the show notes, you'll find my take on the conventions for the other elements in this story. So first, I want to focus on the subgenre, action-adventure. Action subgenres are determined by the force of antagonism. In other words, is your hero facing nature, another character, the state or other large organization, or time? The adventure subgenre features characters against different aspects of the environment and the specific element of the world that creates the power divide, and that's how we figure out which plot is at play. Each action subgenre includes four different plots, some of which include very specific conventions. Now, I'll give one example of each of the action adventure plots here, but you can find more movie and book examples in the show notes. The labyrinth plot, where the power divide is created by a labyrinth or a maze-like edifice, though that is not the specific villain. And of course, The Hunger Games is the choice for today, um, but you might also look at The Wizard of Oz. The monster plot is where the villain is an animal, and Moby Dick is a great example of this. Environment, where the villain is the global setting, you might choose the Poseidon Adventure as an example of this. And finally, Doomsday Plot is where the victim is the environment, and the War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells is an example of this. Now, remember that the 16 plots that are within the subgenres of action can be employed in other primal genres with action elements. For example, Cujo is a horror story with a monster plot. Okay, on to the labyrinth plot. So what's special about these particular stories? Well, the character faces a difficult environment, but as I said before, that environment is not the villain. The setting significantly increases the power divide between the villain and the hero, though. So if you think about Die Hard, Hans Gruber is a formidable villain. But if you take him and the hero, John McClane, out of the Nakatomi Plaza, 
the odds begin to even up. So I want to share a few words about villains generally. In action stories, the villain is the source of conflict and the power divide is large. And so the hero should be vulnerable to the villain's ordinary way of solving problems, but the villain should be immune to the hero's ordinary means of solving problems and their initial strategy. So even in an environment plot like the towering inferno, the fire is not vulnerable to water and the hero must find another way to defeat it. Without the labyrinth of Hunger Games, Snow still has power over Katniss in his capacity as president, but back home in District 12, she could more easily use her hunting and tracking skills to evade capture. So what are the special conventions that come with the labyrinth plot? Again, conventions are the characters, setting, and means of turning the plot. So the character we get that is new to this particular, well, not necessarily new, but is particularly important in a labyrinth plot is the sidekick. And you might have more than one. You might see sidekicks in any action story, but they are particularly important here. Sean has said they exemplify a component of the global hypothesis. Now, I've also noticed that they provide interpersonal conflict in moments when the hero is not actively engaged in fighting the villain. The sidekick can serve as herald, reminding us of what's at stake. They can also be a helper, but their vulnerability represents a challenge for the hero. PETA serves as an example on all counts here. He helps Katniss a great deal, telling her to run when she's stumbling around under the influence of the tracker jacker poison. And he lets us know what's at stake in key moments, especially when it comes to her personal definition of success and moral code. But Katniss's desire to obtain the medicine for PETA actually puts her life in danger. The extra setting conventions that we get in this particular plot include the maze-like edifice, right? This is the labyrinth. This is an environment or set of circumstances that the hero must learn to navigate. Now, in books and movies like The Maze Runner or Pan's Labyrinth, the maze is literal, but it can be figurative like learning to navigate the customs and routines aboard a Royal Navy ship for the first time, which we see in Mr. Midshipman Hornblower. Again, the labyrinth significantly complicates the power divide between the hero and villain, and you as the writer must establish the qualities that do that. One thing I've noticed in reading and watching labyrinth stories is that up until the midpoint, the villain successfully uses the environment against the hero. And around that midpoint shift, the hero learns to navigate at least a little and begins to use it against the villain. Now, The Hunger Games includes a physical labyrinth, the arena, where the tributes must fight to the death, but there is the additional element that the tributes must win over sponsors to pay for useful objects to help them to win, and of course the entire environment of the capital itself. So Katniss must be strong, fast, and smart, but she also has to be a people pleaser if she's going to be successful. Now, in terms of the means of turning the plot, 
the extra conventions we get in the labyrinth plot include a destination or promise. The hero has a quest that arises from the very beginning of the story with a very clear purpose. The destination is directly related to saving the victim, defeating the villain, and escaping the labyrinth. So here, Katniss must survive the Hunger Games to go home and continue to provide for her family. Another means of turning the plot is the path. Now, the hero has to have a clear path to the destination. You might think of this as the yellow brick road in The Wizard of Oz. In The Hunger Games, Cat must avoid being killed by the other tributes and kill those that remain. But as I mentioned earlier, she must also try to gain the admiration of sponsors for help during the fight. So in, in a way, those two are at odds. Another means of turning the plot that we see in labyrinth stories are set pieces. Now, these are sequences within the global story that you can think of as mini quests. The hero must solve a smaller problem as the next step in solving the big problem of defeating the villain and saving the victim. Set pieces come in five basic varieties, though in this story in particular, there is some overlap or you might see them a little differently than I do. The first is the showdown, and this is where the hero and the villain or henchman are actively engaged in fighting. For example, Katniss and Peeta fight Cato to decide who will be the winner of the games. There's also the deadline. The hero has to accomplish some task before the clock runs out. For example, Katniss must obtain the medicine to heal Peta before he dies of his injuries. There's also pursuit. The hero chases or is chased by the villain or henchman. For example, when Katniss gets close to the edge of the arena, Seneca sends fire after her to send her back into the way of the other tributes who then find her and chase her. But we also have the wild beasts that chase Katniss and Peeta. There is also a trap and the hero must survive or escape from this. For example, Katniss is stuck up the tree with Cato's alliance camping at the bottom, and she must figure out a way to escape or she'll starve. Also, I kind of see the packages at the cornucopia that they could be seen as a trap as well. Finally, we have the scramble. The hero and villain struggle for control of the MacGuffin. For example, Katniss and Rue work together to destroy the food of Cato's alliance. Now, those are the additional conventions that I've identified for the labyrinth plot, but be sure to check out the show notes for the rest of the conventions for the Hunger Games. Also, I'm working on a Fundamental Fridays post in which I'm collecting what I've learned from studying action subgenre conventions this season, so be on the lookout for that. Well, that was educational, Leslie. Thank you. you. Your piercing insights into the very specific conventions is really making me think. It's fantastic. So let's hear from Kim. Talk to us about the internal genre. I was so excited when Leslie picked Hunger Games for us to study. I love the books and the films. Before I get into the internal genre, just a quick personal note on the story's point of view, which has been highly influential in my own writing. In the books, the story is told in the first person by Katniss in the present tense. 
this was the first time I'd ever read a book like this. And the intimacy and the immediacy of being in step with Katniss, as well as not knowing what was going to happen because she didn't, was so powerful to me. It seemed plausible that she could actually die because she was telling the story from that very moment. It's interesting to me how the filmmakers captured this feeling with the camera. Lots of close-ups, organic shakes and movements, quick cuts between angles, and panning to imitate that present and intimate feeling. And I absolutely loved it. So Katniss Everdeen is one of my all-time favorite characters. I've thought a lot about her internal arc over the last couple years, but I've never sat down with the tools to officially suss it out. So let's put it through Friedman's framework, shall we? First, who's our protagonist? Katniss Everdeen, of course. What is she like at the beginning of the story? What is her character? That is, her strength of will and motives. Katniss has a highly developed, strong will. She has selfless motives, which she consistently applies and acts on according to her moral code. Her worldview, that is, her thought, beliefs, and perspectives, she's not naive. She's sophisticated. She is guarded and doesn't trust PETA because she can't understand his motives. What is her fortune? That is, her external circumstances. We know she's impoverished. She is unknown and hidden from view under anonymity, but she's also under tyranny by living in Panem, and she's also a victim of the Hunger Games. Now, what is she like at the end of the story? Let's look at her character again. She still has that highly developed strong will. She still has selfless motives, which she has consistently applied according to her moral code. Her worldview has shifted somewhat. She now knows and trusts PETA. And her fortune, her external circumstances have also changed. She is a victor, no longer impoverished, but she still is under tyranny and she is no longer anonymous. But also she's highly regarded by the underclass and now considered a threat by the tyrant. So what aspect of this, of all of those things, has changed the most for Katniss? I see it as her fortune, her external circumstances, and her status, all being the same thing, um, as the thing that has changed the most. How do we feel about this change? Well, we're really proud of her, and personally, I can only hope that I'd act with her level of integrity in that same situation. In fact, my nine-year-old asked me how long I would last if I was picked for the Hunger Games, and I said, maybe a day, maybe. All of this leads us to our internal genre, I feel like best represents this change, which is status admiration. A high level of sophistication and a strongly developed will is the price of admission to morality stories, and the same is true of status admiration. Admiration protagonists operate at a level of transcendence, where they give their gift selflessly for something greater than themselves, but for them, it was never a question of will they, won't they, unlike the morality protagonist. The admiration protagonist does not waver on their moral code. And in fact, it is this unwillingness to be selfish, the unwillingness to choose themselves over others that causes them to rise in status. So clearly, we have a status story that ends positively, which would narrow us to sentimental or admiration arc. But unlike the status sentimental protagonist, the status admiration protagonist is not seeking to rise. Their ambition is to do the right thing as a sense of duty. The rising is merely a consequence of them being exactly who they are. The other thing I'm studying, along with what internal genre the story is, is how that internal genre is created within the life values of the story. So let's take a look at what we see here. In the beginning hook, we see Katniss's character and moral code established when Katniss is comforting her sister from a bad dream and she sings to her. 
We see her external circumstances, the blatant poverty that she and everyone in District 12 lives in. We again see her character in Moral Code. We know that the woods are off limits, but that they need to eat. And this shows her adherence to her own moral code rather than the rules. We see her thought and sophistication with her skill in tracking and bow hunting. And again, we see her external circumstances as she's talking to Gail about the reality that if they ever tried to run away, they'd be caught and have their tongues cut out, etc., etc., basically that they're living under tyranny. And we also see another moment of her character in Moral Code when she says, I'm never having kids. All of this established through action in that opening scene. Then we watch Katniss remain consistent all through getting ready and checking in for the reaping. Her attention and action is focused on caring for her sister and helping Prim get through this scary day. And of course, when Prim is selected, Katniss volunteers in her place and gains her first public acknowledgement of respect and admiration, which is the salute by everyone in District 12. Then, even in her goodbyes to her family, her only concern is for Prim's welfare. In the middle build, her sophistication is defined by self-awareness when she says, I'm not very good at making friends. Then, when the game makers ignore her after she misses her target, their level of disrespect for her and her as a stand-in for any tribute sent to die in the games is unacceptable. She adheres to her own moral code rather than the rules and fires an arrow at the apple. That definitely gets their attention. Then she is rewarded for being her authentic self by Hamish and by the game makers with her score of 11. So you can see this pattern, gaining respect and admiration for being herself by upholding her own moral code, building over the course of the story. Katniss's definition of success is to save her sister, which she can better ensure if she survives the Hunger Games and gets to go home. The gradations of her success and failure life values seems to be particularly defined by anonymity. If she's invisible and unknown, that equates to being unremarkable, which means she won't get sponsors, which Hamish tells her early on is the best way to survive. But Katniss is unwilling to play the game by being false. That goes against her moral code. But it turns out when your true self is as awesome as Katniss, that will get you noticed as well through sponsors and the respect from the people in the districts. But that same tenacity puts her at risk. The career pack sees her as a threat. The game maker links her to the riot in District 11. And President Snow recognizes her as a dangerous symbol of hope for the underclass and a threat to the system. In the ending payoff, the final moment I want to mention is the climax, when the rule about allowing two victors from the same district is revoked. In that moment, Katniss has to make her ultimate choice for success versus failure. Does she choose to survive and return home to care for Prim, or does she choose to honor her moral code of selflessness? The surprising yet inevitable conclusion is that by honoring her moral code and choosing to face death together with the Nightlock Berries, her death becomes a greater threat than her life and forces the game maker to allow them both to live. This moment fantastically showcases the internal genre as the means to achieving the positive external life value. So here we have our controlling idea. Life prevails and status rises when heroes authentically adhere to their moral code, even in or especially in the face of death. Establishing Katniss as an admiration protagonist in this first book of the trilogy is a perfect setup for the next two books. Now, I haven't done a full analysis yet, but my fairly educated hunch is that in Catching Fire, Katniss goes through a worldview revelation arc, 
she doesn't know her allies are united to save her as part of a revolution. And then in Mockingjay, I'd wager another worldview arc, but this time I'm guessing it's worldview maturation, something to do with understanding the nature of tyranny, that is the motives and methods of President Coyne versus President Snow, and the nature of love, the way she feels about Gale versus the way she feels about Peta. All told, Katniss remains a character whose actions authentically reflect her strong moral convictions. So now let's look at the big meta why of status admiration stories. The reason that admiration stories are essential for humanity seems obvious. They represent the highest levels of human integrity and demonstrate what happens when strong-willed, sophisticated people dedicate themselves to living a life that is authentic and aligns with their moral code. We need these examples in our books and in our lives. Katniss Everdeen, Maximus Aurelius, Jon Snow, Andy Dufresne, Horatio Hornblower, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Status admiration protagonists. May we know them. May we be them. May we raise them. Wow, I need to play a audience cheering <laughs> sound for that. That's wonderful. Very, very inspiring. Thank you, Kim. How am I going to follow that? Oh, shit. <laughs> you ended with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I know. I figured of all admiration characters, we had to we had to put him in there for sure. <laughs> you guys stop following Kim, Jari. <laughs> um, so, uh, so as I've been looking at this season, I'm I'm looking at dialogue. I'm looking at set and setting and how it drives dialogue. And The Hunger Games doesn't have very eloquent dialogue. It's got nice, succinct dialogue that really drives the story forward and is in the character voice. Um, When we look at the setting of The Hunger Games, it's a dystopian world that's been ravaged by war. And for penance on that, the people are subjected to this meager existence. So everyone in the districts is basically starving. To drive home the total control, every year they have the Hunger Games, and it's played to remind them that they rebelled and their treachery and president is in complete control over their lives. The masses are starving. It's a struggle to stay alive. And then onto this desperate landscape, we get introduced to Katniss, who fends for herself and her family by hunting, which is, as everyone mentioned, illegal. Her mindset is obviously about survival and providing for her family, which is just her mother and her little sister, Prim. Every year, they pick a couple people, a a woman and a man from each district, and send them off to the Hunger Games, and there's a big to-do. And so what we see is the real character voice of Katniss is when they're doing this, and her little sister gets picked, and she steps up and volunteers. And this is the scene where I think the full weight of what she just did and her true character voice comes out. You can't tune out again. I won't. No, you can't. Not like when dad died. I won't be there anymore. You're all she has. No matter what you feel, you have to be there for her. Do you understand? Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't. You are. Get to a ball. They may not have. Well, if you show them how good you are, 
They just want a good show. That's all they want. If they don't have a bow, then you make one, okay? You know how to hunt. Animals? It's no different, Candace. There's 24 of us, Gail. Only one comes out. Yeah. And it's gonna be you. Okay. Take care of them, Gail. Whatever you do, don't let them starve. Let's go. I'll see you soon, okay? So in this scene, uh, Katniss's character voice clearly comes through. And she really is taking control of her situation, even though she's worried about her family. She's worried about herself. And then she's also worried about Prim. But this scene, it really, think, really captures how she goes from being naive to, oh, yeah, I got to like step up. So if we look at the five tasks of speech for Katniss, which I've been doing, this is part of uh, McKee's uh, dialogue book. We look at the desire. Katniss wants to make sure Prim and her family are taken care of. The sense of antagonism. It's the peacekeepers literally interrupting them. And obviously the Capitol and President Snow. Her choice of action. She's really stern. She lectures her mom about taking care of Prim and, and not tuning out like when her father died. The action reaction. Her mom nods in agreement, but she's really the one pushing it forward. And then the expression as the peacekeepers are taking the family out, she reassures Prim that everything will be okay and asks Gail to take care of her family as well. Um, she's putting on a brave face, but I think she really is, oh no, I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. As they then get whisked away to the Capitol for training, after a couple of days of, of kind of evaluation, for me, this is when she starts to settle into her own. Actually, this scene between President Snow and Seneca really shows how evil the president is and what this whole Hunger Games thing is about. At 11? She earned it. She shot an arrow at your head. Well, at an apple. Near your head. Seneca, why do you think we have a winner? What do you mean? I mean... Why do we have a winner? I mean, if we just wanted to intimidate the districts, why not round up 24 of them at random and execute them all at once? Be a lot faster. Hope. Hope? Hope. It is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective. A lot of hope is dangerous. Spark is fine, as long as it's contained. So, so contain it. If we look at the five tasks of speech for President Snow, it's probably not exactly the speech and praise of the villain, but this is what the villain wants. And this is why he's using the Hunger Games to control the world. So his desire, clearly the president wants to maintain control of his, of his empire. The sense of antagonism is actually Seneca, the game master, because he's actually playing it a little too loose. I don't think Seneca really understands that this is a game to control people, not a game for him to do what he wants to do. The choice of action, President Snow, he explains why hope is a powerful tool. The action reaction, Seneca kind of doesn't really get it. And so the president literally directly threatens him. Take control of this situation or bad things are going to happen to you. And this is really the villain's object of desire, literal brainwashing a la 1984. The president wants total control. That's why he uses these Hunger Games. And even though President Snow doesn't talk much in this entire movie, his presence and what he says is true to character voice and really like nails at home that this is used as a tool to oppress the masses. 
What's also interesting is that in the dialogue above, you hear this little spark of hope. And I think there's no coincidence that Katniss's suit is fire because she is literally going to be the fire that's going to sweep through this entire society. And that just sort of shows a really good setup maybe for the rest of the movies or the, the other couple of books. Not a lot of dialogue. <laughs> it's pretty sparse. It is effective throughout the whole movie. What all the tributes say, as well as their mentors, are all within the character voice. And for an action film, I mean, that's what matters the most. You really want to be sitting there saying, yeah, they'd say that. Yeah, Haywitch would say that. Yeah, Cinna would say that. Yeah, Katniss would say that. Thanks, Jari. Now, Valerie, I know you decided you would like to weigh in a little bit on narrative drive and escalating stakes here. So give us what you got. All righty. <laughs> yes, I am. I'm still nattering on about narrative drive this season. <laughs> and as I've mentioned before, narrative drive does not exist in a silo. Yes, I, I'm studying them one at a time, but that's just so that we understand what each of them means. But narrative drive as a story principle is woven into the fabric of story. And of course, as such, it touches on every other aspect of story. Now, here with the Hunger Games, we have got a wonderful opportunity to study how narrative drive is tied to escalating stakes and progressive complications. Raising the stakes of a story is a common problem for new writers, and I am not on a soapbox here, like I include myself in this, either because we're not aware that we need to do it, or because we don't want to throw our protagonists in the deep end and let them figure it out. But Suzanne Collins, of course, did not have this problem. <laughs> in The Hunger Games, the stakes start out really high. And they just keep getting higher. In the global inciting incident, Katniss volunteers to take Prim's place at the Hunger Games. This is such a well-crafted scene, and it does everything that the global inciting incident needs to do. It establishes the genre, the global value, the protagonists' objects of desire, and of course, the stakes. By the end of The Reaping, which I think is chapter one in the book, and it's the first 15 minutes of the movie, we know that Katniss's life is at stake, and our heads are just filled with questions. And just as an aside, each of the opening scenes in the film turns on the global value of life and death. So well done. So here's the types of questions that are going through our heads just in the opening minutes of the movie. Will Prim be chosen for The Hunger Games? Will Katniss kill the deer? Will Gale be chosen in the games? Will Gale and Katniss be found in the forest? Will Gale and Katniss have a future together? Who will be chosen for the games if it's not Prim, if it's not Gale? Will it be Katniss? Will it be someone else? What will happen to Prim at the games? How will Katniss survive the games? Because we do know she's going to survive. We're not wondering that, really. The question is, how will she survive? Who is Peta? Is he a friend or a foe for Katniss? We know that Peta and Katniss have a shared past, but what is all that about? Will Mrs. Everdeen be able to keep it together for Prim? Are Katniss and Gail in love? I mean, it's kind of clear, I think, that he loves her, but how does she feel? So we've got one huge question propelling this entire story forward, and that is how will Katniss survive? 
Even though the story starts with high stakes question, Suzanne Collins found a way to take them even higher. For example, we discover that Katniss is to have a mentor, and this is an opportunity. But he's a drunk, which is an obstacle. How can she survive without someone to train her? To win the game, Katniss needs to get people to like her. But this is not really what she's good at. (laughs) In fact, she's terrible at it. This is an obstacle. How can she win if nobody likes her? And if she's not interested in getting anyone to like her? We know that Peta understands how to play the game and that it is a game. And he's a likable kind of guy. Does this give him an advantage over Katniss in The Hunger Games? Cinna is an ally, which is an opportunity. But will Katniss listen to him? Because it's obvious she won't listen to anybody else. I could go scene by scene of The Hunger Games and do a full Power of Ten analysis. Kim and I wrote a Power of Ten article on the Fundamental Fridays blog, and I'll link to that in the show notes. It's quite intensive. Here in The Hunger Games, with each obstacle, we wonder how Katniss will overcome it to survive the games. And with each opportunity, we wonder if she's going to mess it up and make life worse for herself. Remember, what Katniss needs is to learn to be vulnerable because she refuses to do that. And she, that refusal keeps ruining each opportunity that comes her way. Even when she inadvertently does something to help her situation, like shooting the apple out of the pig's mouth, she also ends up creating more problems for herself. For example, she gets a rating of 11 out of 12, which means that she catches Snow's attention. Snow does not want her to win because it would mean that the districts would have too much hope. So now it's not only the other tributes who want Katniss to fail, but it's also the president. We're still asking ourselves the same question, how will Katniss survive the games? But now her chances of surviving, which were never very good in the first place, are getting even smaller. As a result, we're becoming more and more curious. And this is what narrative drive is all about, right? The more curious we become about a story, the more likely we are to turn the page or, in this case, to keep watching. Wow, Valerie, that was fantastic. Thank you. I have increased my own understanding of The Power of Ten just by listening to you for the past few minutes. Thank you very much. It was wonderful. And thank you, everybody. It was a great discussion. To wind up our episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from Matt. And Matt writes, how does an author take real-life experience and fictionalize it into a story that works? Are there real-to-fiction conversion principles or... As I suspect, is it entirely subjective and must be considered on a story event by story event basis? And what role does intended audience understanding play in these decisions? And Jari has been kind enough to take on this question for us. Yeah, thanks, Matt, for the question. I totally struggle with this all the time as I'm writing a memoir, as well as taking some real life people and their histories for a chapter book I'm working on about a magical, mystical mirror. What I have learned is that the principles of story apply to real-life stories as well, except sometimes your real-life stories don't have all the five commandments present. If they do, they might be weak, and that's where the art comes in. Your real-life stories most likely don't have the proper conventions or obligatory scenes for the genre as well. In a real-life story is worth telling, then my guess is that most of the commandments of story are present, 
but need a little story spice to kick it up a notch. That's where the fiction comes in. To make the progressive complications more complicated, the crisis question amped up, or the climax more exciting. I don't think the intended audience plays a role in the conversion from real life to fiction. You know, all stories must have the five commandments, and that should be independent of audience. Your best bet, as this is what I struggle with again, is write down the real life story as accurate as you can. Then apply the five commandments and see where the holes are. Then go in and add the spice, reread it, and see how it works. Do this until you feel that the real life has been transformed into fiction enough to move your macro story forward. Uh, one word of caution on this remember that your fictional additions must be in the voice of the character. If the real life person would not do something, then the fictional character should not do it as well. So, good luck, Matt, and let us know how it goes. Thanks, Jari, and thank you, Matt, for an excellent question. If you have a question about action, subgenre conventions, or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Great discussion. Thank you, Leslie, for the wonderful movie recommendation. Jari, Kim, and Valerie for excellent editorial insights into The Hunger Games. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to incorporate the conventions into your own action stories. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you would like to connect to one of us directly, links to our websites are in the show notes. You can support us by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and by telling other writers about us. Join us next time for some hilarity in dialogue as Jari examines the 1988 British-American heist comedy A Fish Called Wanda as a great example of how set and setting drive dialogue. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. And we're out. Thank you, everybody. Great job. Woohoo! Sometimes it's really fun to pick just a really good movie that just really works. Yes, it is. <laughs> Gives us all hope. Yeah.